My good people, greetings, how are you? What is happening? What is going on? How are we feeling? Hope everybody's doing well on this Monday as we kick off another week and another sports podcast here as I deliver it all to you on a platinum platter here on the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. For my first timers listening in, I'll forewarn you, I'm in a nasty, vicious sports mood today. So I'm setting the tone early with that statement. I hope you come on back for many, many more podcasts in the weeks and months to come. So thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content and welcome aboard. And for those who have been with me on this journey from episode 1 to now 9-0, that's right, 90, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, September the 9th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Here's what I have on tap. Rafael Nadal is your men's U.S. Open winner as he took the championship from uh, Medvedev there at Flushing Center. And the night before, where Serena Williams was looking to get her 24th Women's Grand Slam title, she was short-circuited yet again. Back-to-back years, and not only that, back-to-back Wimbledons too, I might add, as she loses to Bianca Andreescu. I guess I pronounced her name. I'm going to talk about both of those players in particular, how Nadal's now one match, or I should say one championship closer to equaling his counterpart, and a one, Roger Federer, and Serena Williams, how she can't seem to get over that hump to get to number 24. So that'll be later on in the podcast. We'll have all the baseball, the Mets, Mickey Calloway. I am just frustrated and angry. The Mets season is now done. You can forget about the postseason. There's no way, shape, or form they're going to make it. That's right. I said it in June, and even though I had hopes, I thought maybe a month ago they could make a run at this thing. But as I said time and time again, I can never trust them. But I could certainly not trust the manager, and we're going to get to that later on. But here we are. The day after week one, and tonight we have two games, one in New Orleans where the Texans will host, or I should say the Saints will host the Texans, excuse me, and the Raiders will be hosting the Denver Broncos later on in the double dip on Monday night ESPN. But this morning as we wake up, you have 28 teams, or I should say 28 NFL cities are either feeling like they could start printing up the Super Bowl tickets, start their parade routes for wherever the Super Bowl trophy and the parade may be. And in the other 14 cities, they're right now getting ready to see who is going to draft number one overall. And chances are it will be Tua Tagoliova. Hope I pronounced that right. As we all know, I butchered his name going back to last year. But 28 teams right now are feeling either sadness or just overjoyed. So even if that means you're in Baltimore, even if that means you're in Dallas, even if that means you're in L.A. as far as the Chargers or the Rams, where things are just looking bright and sunny, or if you're in Cleveland, or if you're in New York, whether you're a Jet or Giant fan, and for sure in Pittsburgh where the Steelers just, I, I, I can't even get into it right now. That's how angry I am, and I will get into it, trust me. But with all that being said, hope may spring eternal in 14 of those cities and in the other 14, you could just pretty much write off this whole season. But let's face it, one game does not make a season. We cannot look here in any of those cities and say, oh, geez, the sky's falling. You can forget about it. Just trash 2019 into the garbage. Or for those cities, you can't say that we're going to raise that Super Bowl trophy. Might as well just punch our ticket to Miami where Super Bowl 54 is going to be played, and away we go. We all know, unlike baseball, basketball, hockey, those team sports, that once you lose the first game, there's still plenty of season to go. Where in the NFL, you've already closed out 116th of your season, and whether you won 59-10 in Miami like the Baltimore Ravens did, or lost 33-3 like the Steelers did, you're going to think in polar opposites that There's no way, shape, or form that the Ravens are going to lose a game. And if you're the Steelers, uh, where are they going to find a victory on the schedule? Considering they go to play Seattle, who comes to town next week, as their week two opponent. We cannot get all wrapped up in these one games. And I know for sure, me being a Steeler fan, that I'm going to look at last night and think that the rest of the season is going to go that way. That's how hypercritical... A lot of the fans are on the plus side or the minus side when it comes to their football teams. And we could go right through it and write down the list as to how these teams performed and how they played. And 
there are many alarming issues when you go throughout the course of the league and you look at how Baltimore performed and Lamar Jackson, and I got a bucket of ice water for that team. The Miami Dolphins, let's face it, if they're going to be two guarantees in the NFL this year, and these are the exceptions before I even get to the Ravens, without jumping the gun and thinking that one game is going to either torpedo your season or catapult it, the only exceptions that are going to happen right now, on the plus side, if you're in New England, just give them a 13-3 and record. Not only that, when you give them a 13-3 and record, they have the number one seed right now. Unless the Kansas City Chiefs have a better record, and if that's the case, they're 14-2, and then they'll have the one seed, fine. But let's just pencil in, or better yet, let's just sharpie in the Patriots at 13-3 and and having the top seed in the conference unless the Chiefs have a better record. Or, if they are 13-3, and they have to be 12-0. and Because remember, they do face the Patriots later on. I believe it's week 15, no, week 14. They face them. And that's, I believe it's in Foxborough. So, unless the Chiefs go 12-0 and and are 13-3, and the same record as the Patriots, or if they have a better record than the Patriots, then the number one seed and the AFC goes through New England. Because you might as well just put them in the championship game right now. Don't even have the Patriots play anymore this year. Just give them 13-3. Let them scrimmage against each other from now until late January. And then just wake up that beast the morning of, whether the game is going to be in Foxborough or in Kansas City, and then have them play the game. I'm serious. Why? Why even bother? And I understand a lot of that's a Steeler indictment, and I'm going to get to them in a little bit. But the Patriots, and with Antonio Brown coming in this week, and I'm not going to get wrapped up in a whole Antonio Brown thing. And I mean, please, to me, that's just a waste of time. We all know the story. You want to have the conspiracy as far as him torpedoing his own Raider career just so he can get out of there and play in New England. Well, guess what? He was successful. God bless him. Let's move on. All right, because I'm not here to dissect, regurgitate anything that happened with Antonio Brown over the last five days. You want to talk about that on your show, or if you want to leave a message on any of my social media platforms to discuss it, we could discuss it then. On this podcast, that's it. The line has been drawn. As far as the Patriots are concerned, just wake them up in late January and see what happens. If you listened to my NFL podcast last week, I did not pick them to go to Super Bowl because I couldn't. I'm sick and tired of the Patriots. I'm sure all of America is. And rightfully so. What are you going to do? Make it four straight Super Bowls? The first team to do so since the Bills and the only team to do so, I might add. And now with Antonio Brown being part of their team to go with Josh Gordon, with Philip Dorsett, Sony Michelle, and everybody else on that offensive front, which, let's face it, it's not the 27, or 2007 version where you had Dante Stallworth, Randy Moss, Wes Welker. Uh, it's certainly not that ilk. But it's not too shabby either. So that's the one guarantee you have. And then the other guarantee and the other exception is the Miami Dolphins. They're by far going to be either 0-16 or 1-15. And despite the fact that New England always has trouble in Miami, well, guess what? They're actually going down there this weekend. And playing a game on Sunday. And I believe the spread right now is 15 and a half. And of course, it's easy to say that, oh, 15 and a half. Well, look what they did to the Steelers yesterday. And look what the Ravens did to the Dolphins yesterday. And of course, you're going to think that the Dolphins don't even belong on the same field. But watch, it'll be in the fourth quarter. And the Dolphins will be within a touchdown. Because that's how the NFL works. Week in, week out. But one thing for sure is that this Dolphin team is going nowhere fast. To the tune of reports coming out of Miami yesterday that players and multiple players were requesting trades to be off of this team. Now, it didn't seem to be true. And it certainly didn't surface anywhere else from what I saw, but one website had it that. And again, you can't believe everything you read, but that Dolphin team, uh, oh, geez, that is going to be a brutal team to watch. So, let me start here, going back to the Ravens. Wonderful performance yesterday. We get that that's a Division One football defense that they faced. Lamar Jackson did have some nice throws, but again, he had all day to throw. So I'm not going to look at this one game, and yes, here comes the buckets of ice water right now. I am not looking at this one game to think that, oh, Lamar Jackson right now is going to be in the MVP running for the NFL this year. 
let's pipe down. Despite the fact they threw for five touchdowns, despite their offense putting up 59 points, there is no way that I'm going to canonize this man after this one performance. And i giving him credit. He made good throws. He made long throws, deep throws. Didn't make a lot of plays with his legs. Give him credit. But I am not ready to anoint this man the 2019 NFL MVP after this one game against, let's face it, the Miami Hurricanes. Yeah, not the Dolphins. I said the Hurricanes. And the Hurricanes are off to a bad start themselves. They're 0-2. So it looks like whether college or pro football down in South Florida is going to be a long season. Now, as far as other teams, I understand the Dallas Cowboys, and they're going to look formidable, without question. Look at the performance they put on yesterday, and I'm not here to throw ice water on them. Dak Prescott, a very solid game, great performance. Jason Winton comes back, scores a touchdown. They're off and running, and it looks like they're going to have a big-time season. But remember, who their coach is. And Dak Prescott, we got to see that in a huge spot. The Giants, their defense is a far cry. Forget about even the LT, Carl Banks, Harry Carson days. It's a far cry from the Justin Tuck, OCU Manura, Michael Strahan pass rush that they had many years ago going back to their 07 and 2011 Super Bowl titles. And I understand in Dallas you're pumped up because you haven't had this type of excitement in quite some time. I understand you were 13-3 and the first year of Dak and also Zeke Elliott. But still, there hasn't been this much expectation coming into this year, especially when you sign Ezekiel Elliott just days before the start of the season. So as much as you want to jump for joy and feel like, oh, we have the team to beat, and let's get all crazy, let's slow down. Because like I mentioned, the coach and also the quarterback in a big spot, we got to see that. Same thing in Philly. Down 17-0 to the Redskins. They came back, 32-27. And what happens? Right away, everybody in Philly, I'm sure, is jumping for joy and looking to maybe meet the Patriots again as they did two years ago in Minnesota. But again, we must slow down. Pump those brakes. Let's not get crazy. One game a season does not make. Also, if you're in Green Bay, Now, that game on Thursday night, oh my goodness. That set football back 50 years. Just a brutal display of football. Hard to watch. And I understand you could tie it into the preseason. We get that Trubisky did not, the quarterback of the Bears, Mitchell Trubisky, did not say that the preseason had any effect on his performance throughout the course of the game and why they lost the game. But I watched with my own two eyes just one half, and it was as bad as it gets. And a lot of it has to do with lack of reps in the preseason. I mean, who's fooling who here? Who's watching these games? I'm not watching these preseason games. And when you see that performance on that stage, even Aaron Rodgers overthrowing receivers and him not being the same quarterback that we've seen time and time again. And people could say, oh, it's only week one. They got to shake off the rust. Shake off the rust. These guys should be primed and ready to go. Think Tom Brady had to shake off rust yesterday? Or Lamar Jackson, for that matter? Even in Minnesota. My guy, Jason Lalek. I'm sure he's excited. He's more excited about his twins, and rightfully so, because they're getting toward the end of a baseball season, five and a half games up on the Indians, and they still got to play the Indians again in Cleveland. And I'll get to the baseball later. But when you look at the Dalvin Cook and how he performed yesterday, right out of the gate, and what they did to Atlanta, destroyed him. Matt Ryan, understand 300 yards. It looks great in your fantasy. Oh, great, please. And don't, look, don't get me started on fantasy, people. Because I know everybody right now is just wrapped up in the stats and wrapped up in their teams and so on and so forth. All I could say is four words about that. I could care less. Also, Rams. Think there was going to be any Super Bowl hangover? Absolutely not. And what they did to Carolina yesterday. The Chiefs. Maybe a little hangover after making it so far. D Ford offsides of going to the Super Bowl. Right out of the gate against Jacksonville. And then when you look at Jacksonville, talk about skies falling. Nick Foles breaks his clavicle. He's done. I know Tyreek Hill's going to be out for some time for Kansas City. Speaking of collarbones, his not as serious as Nick Foles is concerned, but then you're going to hear all the 
talk, I'm sure, in the weeks leading up to the football trade deadline where Eli Manning and his performance yesterday was not bad. Even though I thought they were a little bit too pass happy, they didn't exploit Saquon Barkley the way they should have, as exciting, probably as exciting as a player in the NFL right now as there is. But they had Eli throw for 44 times, almost to prove that, hey, we know Eli could still play at a high level. But instead of using all their big weapons, and especially their biggest weapon on offense, no. That's why they only scored 17 points in the game. But you got to wonder if Eli's going to be heading south to Jacksonville, considering Jacksonville has some big aspirations and high hopes to making it deep into an AFC playoff run, or possibly even a Super Bowl. So when you look at a lot of these teams and a lot of these areas that are looking to either take that next step or even taking that step back when you look at what happened in Cleveland yesterday. Now that was just, nobody saw that coming. All right, could they lose a game at home to the Titans? Absolutely. But to lose by 30? Boy, I tell you, that bandwagon, we all know. Outside of Cleveland, they better have airbags. Because now they're going to come to New York next week to play a Jet team who, let's face it, 16-0 in the third quarter and you're going to lose that game? Josh Allen showed you a little something there, showed some gumption. You had the running back. What's his, I was going to say Devin Montgomery. Devin Singletary, who obviously showed how effective he could be in this league. A lot of that came in the second half, of course. That Jet secondary... As bad as it gets, it's it's one of those things where when you look at the schedule and you look at how these teams perform time and time again, and it almost seems like I don't want to say they're snake bit, but they're just they're jinxed. So whether you're in Jetland or in Cleveland, just those two places for starters, and considering they're gonna play this coming week, one of those teams is gonna be 0 and 2. Or even dare I say 0 1 and 1, considering what happened in the desert yesterday between Detroit and Arizona. And the Kyler Murray era certainly didn't go off to a great start, but considering that he was pretty much scrambling for his life, but he did show his ability, made plays, and came out with a tie. Yeah, is that anything to jump for joy and clap your hands and stomp your feet? Absolutely not. But at the same time, there is some hope there. Not for this year, of course. So now when you look at Cleveland and how they performed, and the Jets and how they performed, high hopes abound. We all must take a step back. Take a big, giant breath. Even the Chargers, for that matter. Chargers and Colts, Jacoby Brissett was pretty good. And I picked them as an under this year. But again, it's just one game. Can we all just... That's it, people. As long as we do that, we'll be perfectly fine. Because if we are going to just take one game and go nuts and to think that, oh, the season is done, there's no way, shape, or form that this team's ever going to win a game or look at the performance of this player or this quarterback or this running back or this defense, then forget about it. Why even bother watching? You're just going to make yourself crazy for no apparent reason. And the same goes for those teams that were able to shoot right out of the gate. Up in Minnesota, down in Baltimore, certainly in Foxborough. But then again, Foxborough, they're the standard, they're the exception. As I said, just wake them up in January, tell them where they're going to play. Oh, the game's at home, the championship game? Great. Oh, oh wait, we got to fly back to Kansas City for a second year in a row? Sure, no problem. And they'll be ready to go. But everybody else, just take a deep breath, relax, and tomorrow will be 32 teams, uh, 32 cities, 16 on the positive, 16 on the negative. And then hopefully, as we get closer to Thursday with Bucks and Panthers, we, or the Buccaneers and Panthers, we could certainly then make our way to week two and hopefully not be able to look at the skies at falling or every day is going to be sunshine and rainbows, depending on what NFL city you're in. Now, to assess the Steeler disaster last night, For Mike Tomlin, he came out and said this team was not ready for primetime. And that was an understatement. It was just deplorable, inexcusable. There was no way that this team... All right, defensively, I will say this. 
Defensively, I thought as much because, as I said last week, and one of the key points for the Steelers coming into the season is that they're going to rely too much on Devin Bush. Here's a guy that was replacing Ryan Shazier. We know how critical and pivotal Ryan Shazier was as far as the Steelers' defense is concerned. And to have a guy who's just fresh out of college to just pretty much pick up what Shazier left off going back to December 2017 is going to be a tall order for this kid. And not to say I was pinning it all on him, but even the defense on a whole. Because the defensive line, as much as it's a veteran leadership there with Cameron Hayward, Stephon Seward, Javon Hargrave, we get that. But when you look at that secondary, whether your name is Mike Hilton, whether your name is Cam Kelly, whether your name is Cam Sutton, we get Joe Hayden. He's well-experienced, well-versed in the NFL, and has seen quite a bit. But when you have those guys like that, and even to a certain extent, T.J. Watt and Bud Dupree. We get that Dupree's been in the league four years and T.J. Watt is his third year. But still, they haven't seen it all. And when you see what happens last night, and I'm not trying to make any excuses for this defense. I'm not. Because the defense was putrid. And even when they played man, they, the Patriots were always able to find holes. And the one play that, I, that just stuck out in my mind so much when I saw the play develop and they had the wide angle on it, on NBC, where Brady goes back to pass and he finds a wide-open Philip Dorsett as he goes right by Cam Kelly into the end zone. It was so reminiscent of that 2007 game when Pittsburgh went up to Foxborough, when Anthony Smith, who was the safety of the Steelers at the time, was pretty much trashing Randy Moss and saying things along the likes like, oh, they're overrated, or oh, yeah, we could stop them, or oh, yeah, we could take care of that deep ball. And what happened? Anthony Smith bit faked, and Randy Moss went right by him, touchdown, and the same play that day, back in 2007, was the same play I saw yesterday. I've watched these Patriot teams just murder the Steelers, especially in Foxborough. And you know the stats, you know the numbers, I don't have to tell you, if you're a Steeler fan. So when you look at how the Patriots and how they play against the Steelers, especially from an offensive standpoint, now, mind you, I am not a coach. I am not in the locker room. I have none of those things. And nor do I profess to want to be that or show any type of professionalism when it comes to coaching or X's and O's or anything like that. But here's the one thing in doing what I do and following this team forever, the Steelers that is, I've watched the Patriots do this over and over and over against the Steelers. So guess what? Because I've seen this bad movie constantly over the years, Not to say I knew what was coming, but you have a great sense to know that you're going to see a lot of dinks and dunks. If you're going to be man, they're going to attack this part of the field. If it's going to be in a zone, God forbid, the whole middle of that field is going to be destroyed. You just see it. And the sad part is the Steelers personnel so green, most of their defenders, especially in that secondary, are so green and have not seen any of these type of offensive packages that, of course, they're going to be torched singed it's gonna look awful even the Steeler teams that had the Troy Polamalu's of the world the Joey Porter's of the world the James Harrison's of the world they couldn't stop it so what makes you think this team could stop it and I understand the Steeler fans gonna say well Jay Reels look what happened last year in December in Pittsburgh well the game was in Pittsburgh A and B the Pittsburgh had a little bit more gas in the tank as far as getting ready to play New England and even the year before the famous Jesse James catch or non-catch at the goal line when the game the Steelers should have won the game let's face it and should have been hosting instead of Jacksonville. They would have been hosting Tennessee instead. And that's not to say they can't pay to play the Patriots. But they certainly can't play them up in Foxborough. That's number one. And number two, and I have to throw this in there. Week one matchup, Steelers-Patriots. And I understand it happened in 2015 and they lost 28-21. to The score wasn't as close as it was indicated at that time. But this was just an awful matchup for the Steelers team. I rather would have seen them play New England week 8, 9, 10, 11, where they had a better gauge. Week 1 was the worst opponent for the Steelers to have. And now let's go on the offensive side because I don't know what game plan Randy Fickner, the offensive coordinator, came up with. Why couldn't they pound the rock on 3rd and 1? They couldn't complete a 3rd and short or 4th and short the whole night. I understand that James Conner is not Jerome Bettis. He is certainly not Franco Harris. But can he get a yard? Can he able to convert on a short yarded situation and Ben what was happening 
Ben Roethlisberger looked like he just started playing quarterback six months ago. And everybody knows how much I love Ben Roethlisberger. Can't get enough of him. One of my all-time favorites. But even he, I don't want to say he looked like a deer in headlights. That's too strong because the guy has played in the league 16 years and knows this New England defense very well. But, man, with that offensive output that he had, and forget about the final numbers. A lot of that was in garbage time. So if you want to look, oh, he had 280-something yards. Forget it. Please. That's mindless. But for Roethlisberger to almost not have a clue, you, he probably wished that he had Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell back because he had drops left and right. Dante Moncrief, I mean, please, what happened? It looked like he just started playing football last week. The receivers didn't help him out. Their offense was a far cry from what it once was, and I really believe that this offense is going to do well. I believe that. And I, again, can I chalk it back to the preseason? I absolutely can, but there's no excuses. They should have been ready and prepared. And Mike Tomlin said this team was not ready for primetime. And boy, did it show. Uh, Just a putrid, pathetic, inexplicable, inexcusable performance. On all aspects of this game, but especially offensively. Because I'm going to add this too. As improved and as good and as solid as that Patriot defense is, and I'll give them credit, they shut the Steelers down, period. But what in the world? This Patriot defense is not the 85 Bears. This Patriot defense is not the 2000 Ravens. This Patriot defense is not the Steel Curtain. So you mean to tell me they couldn't move the ball on this team? And then also, what is Mike Tomlin at 20 to nothing? What is he doing kicking a field goal there? What is the point? I get in the postgame, oh, I wanted to get some points on the boards for some positivity, whatever. As you well know, as much as you've played this team, field goals are not going to win games. At 20 to 7, at least you cut the deficit not only to within two scores, but by kicking a field goal, you're still three scores down. So it's almost as if Tomlin hasn't learned. So that's another thing I didn't understand, why he did that. Just an all-around abomination of a game. That even their backup center, when he came into the game after Pouncey left with an ankle, he came in and he didn't even snap the ball <laughs> when the play started. So that only just goes to show you how unprepared this team was to start this season, let alone to play against the defending Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots. Here are your games of note for week two coming up. We understand we have the Monday night games tonight, as we mentioned earlier. And we have uh, Buccaneers-Panthers, your Thursday night game. That's, let's face it, that's a whole hummer. But you have Vic Fangio, former defensive coordinator of the Bears, hosting uh, the Chicago at Denver so that you have that matchup, which is going to be fascinating to see and to see if the Bears, who obviously got off to that slow start, if they could bounce back, which would be uh, tough sledding for them. You don't really have much of anything. Vikings-Packers, if you want to look at that, that's going to be a good matchup. You have 49ers and Bengals, which uh, obviously is not going to revisit NFL history for Super Bowls 16 and 23 for that matter. So, But you have that for nostalgia purposes. Cowboys and Redskins, let's see if the Redskins, who had a 17-0 jump on the Eagles, if they could uh, do anything at home to slow down that Cowboy freight train. Cardinals and Ravens, I don't know what, what's up with Terrell Suggs as far as his health is concerned. I know he's on the Cardinals. Well, he has a homecoming here with the Ravens, so that's going to be interesting if you're going to get yourself wrapped up around that. Saints and Rams are your 425 Fox game, so that's a game of note. Eagles-Falcons is your Sunday night game. Browns and Jets, as we talked about, your Monday night game. Not a lot of sexy games. Jaguars, Texans, Chiefs, Raiders, Bills, Giants, Patriots, Dolphins, as we talked about. Colts, Titans, Chargers, Lions. Uh, that's pretty much your week two. And Seahawks and Steelers talk about revisiting Super Bowl matchups of uh, Super Bowl 40. Uh, nobody's going to be thinking about that when the Seahawks and Steelers meet up at uh, Heinz Field on Sunday. And uh, that's pretty much going to be your week two. Now, as far as my knockout pick, speaking of Seattle, I picked them, and I just whew, was able to uh, squeak by with that one as the Bengals fought long and hard to upset the Seahawks up at the, was that, CenturyLink Field? I don't know. They change their names every five minutes. Uh, this week, of course, it's easy to pick New England people. I'm not going to do that because you want to save the good teams for later on in the year. That's why I picked Seattle. And even though Seattle with them beating Cincinnati, because again, with this knockout pool, I can't pick these teams more than once. So now, as I'm looking through these games, I don't know what to choose here. Should I go Baltimore? You know what? I could have went with them. And I I didn't want to go Baltimore week one, despite the fact. And look, 
they should beat the Cardinals. I mean, there's no excuse. And the game's at home, even if the Cardinals did tie. Yeah, I'm going to pick Baltimore at home. And of course, watch Baltimore lose, which would be great for me because I'd want them to lose, even though it's against an NFC opponent. But I digress. Uh, so Baltimore's going to be my knockout pick this coming week. And uh, let's see how that goes down. So that's your NFL week one as I spent a half hour talking about that. And now let's move on to some baseball as uh, I got some more venom to spew. All right, now let's go from bad to worse. So after watching Death by a Thousand Paper Cuts, the Pat offense just slicing the Steelers left and right. The Mets, on the other hand, are just a groin kick, stomach punch, and a right cross literally to the draw when it comes to watching this ball club. And now we could finally say, although mathematically alive, and unofficially say that the season is done. And all we got to do is look back to what happened last Tuesday, which I'm not going to revisit. But I will say this, in defense of Mickey Calloway, he did one good thing and one bad thing. The good thing was, in taking Lugo out, and we all know his situation, Seth Lugo that is, where he wanted to spare him to possibly pitch the next day, in the likelihood that with the Mets having a six-run lead in the ninth inning, that they could save him for the, hopefully, what would have been the sweep against the Washington Nationals. But the bad thing that he didn't do that night was after bringing in the right-hander, Paul Sewald, who was awful, and instead of bringing in the left-hander, Justin Wilson, he brings in the left-hander, Luis Avalon, and although he had a good pitch to Soto and he had a base hit with an RBI, but still, you got to put your best relievers there. And then we know what happened with Edwin Diaz, and away we go. So then now, Friday night, in a game that the, the Mets absolutely must have, they're up 4-2 in the ninth inning. And I get that this bullpen, he has nowhere to turn to. And of course, Seth Lugo was not in the game. So what happens? Edwin Diaz is your closer. They bring him in. Sure enough, 4-2 game becomes a 4-4 game because JT Real Muto puts him over the wall at City Field. And... To the chagrin of the Met fans, and I get that it's tough not to boo, considering how just god awful he's been, and this trade is looking like the worst trade in Met history. Yes, even worse than Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi and even Tom Seaver Midnight Massacre back in 1977. But when the Met fan, although they have every right to boo, but for them to just behind the dugout watching that video where you know just. Cursing, and that's uncalled for. I don't boo my players. People who know me, I don't do that. But for the 25-year-old that wants to do that, okay, fine. What's that going to do? You could be upset. You could be frustrated. You could be mad, whatever. But by booing and spewing profanities, please, if that's what you get your rocks off on, then maybe find something else to do. But I get that Mickey has nowhere to go. But let's face it, we could have put Edwin D. We could have put Seth Lugo there, but no, let's not do the do so, and put Edwin Diaz there. And then yesterday was just a coup de gras. And I didn't watch the game yesterday. Obviously, with all the NFL and a lot going on, and I get that the Mets were still fighting for their dear lives, and they need to win this game in the worst way. But when you have a situation where you're already losing seven six, sadly you take out your starter at 78 pitches in the fifth inning because you pinch it for him for Todd Frazier and he strikes out where I get that the game could have been broken open there a little bit because this game took forever. It was four hours, 29 minutes. It was a nine inning game. So what started at 110 and ended at 539. It ended like pretty much at the halftime of the giant cowboy game. That's how long it was. So when you take him out of the game and now you got to deal with this bullpen, I understand you wanted to strike. You wanted to see if you could get the big hit. And Todd Frazier, is you're going to be your guy you're going to put up at the plate at that, at that juncture of the game in the bottom of the fifth inning? And then where are you going to go for relief to close this game out? So that's number one. And then number two, his reasoning for walking Andrew Knapp, who was a backup catcher, for walking him at that part of the game where it was 9-6 and he... Brings up to Bryce Harper was on deck. So he intentionally walks in to face Bryce Harper. I don't care if Bryce Harper's 0 for 4,000. What are you doing not pitching to a backup catcher who's probably batting off the top of my head, maybe 220? And if it's 
higher than that, I've to anybody who knows Andrew Knapp, my apologies. But come on. What are you doing intentionally walking? I mean, then what happens is that they still walk Bryce Harper to walk in a run. So he didn't even get to make any contact during his plate appearance. It was, let's walk, intentionally walk Andrew Knapp, and all because of the reason, Mickey Calloway says, is because he wanted to get that reliever. His name is Mike Moran or Mark Moran, whatever his name is. He wanted to get the reliever out of the game. Because remember, Harper got hit by a pitch on Friday night, so he didn't play, so he was pinch hitting at that moment. So again, he has a bad hand, hasn't played, but no, let's walk Knapp so we can pitch to Harper. Maybe because he thought the bad hand was so bad that he wasn't going to be able to swing a bat. Well, he didn't even need to because they walked in a run. That's where Callaway has to go. And I don't know if Brody Van Wagenen's behind this. I don't know if he's, uh, again, on the phone. Remember, there were rumors about that in that game out in Arizona. So whether it's Brody, whether it is Mickey Callaway, but all we can look at is what the manager does and the moves that he's making. And you know what? I understand that they fought hard. I understand that they've played this out a lot longer than they probably should have. But I think it's time. Callaway, he has to go. Has to. Because what he did, whether it was down in Washington on Tuesday, what he did on Friday with Diaz, and then yesterday, that's just, come on. It's the end of the line. There's no way that this guy can manage his team next year. And I got nothing against the guy personally. Seems like a nice guy. He's fun, optimistic. And I, I'm sick and tired of his post-game comments. Even with Tuesday night with Diaz. Well, his stuff is electric. He's throwing 99. But if he's throwing it straight, that sucker's going to go right back over the wall. What do you think? It's 99 with movement? And Kurt Suzuki, this guy's killed the Mets over the years. You know, they make Kurt Suzuki out to be Johnny Bench. I would love to see his all-time numbers against the Mets and then everybody else throughout baseball. And I bet you it pales in comparison. Has to. But Mickey Calloway, I mean, stop with the excuses, stop with the sugarcoating, stop with the pom-poms. I understand you're not going to bury your player. I understand you're going to say, well, he's got to get the guy out. He's got to, you know, whatever it is. We understand he's going to toe the company line. He's not going to throw anybody under the bus. But can we have a, just, a, just a slight bit of reality come out and say, yeah, he's throwing hard, but he's just not making his pitches. Because I don't care how fast the 99-mile-an-hour pitch or an 82-mile-an-hour slider, you hang that slider, it's gone. That fastball's down the middle, it's gone. That's all there is to it. I don't care how electric it is. It's electrical light, all right. Electric going in, but it's even that much more electric going out. And this Met team, even with seven more games on his homestand, four against an Arizona Diamondback team, which I, I don't know what's gone into them. This team, all of a sudden, they're on a... Just this rabid pace to get to the postseason, a la San Diego Padres. What was it, back in 2000? Oh, I should say Colorado Rockies. I said San Diego Padres. Well, they beat the Padres. Not to bring that up to the four Padre fans that are probably listening to this, or if, if it's four people, I, hey, I appreciate it, and thank you for listening. But Colorado, when they had that magical run to the postseason, Colorado won. They were 21 to 22 games to get to the World Series. Well, that's what the Diamondbacks are doing right now. And they come to City Field for four games this week, which who knows what's going to happen with Mickey and his decisions. And Because there's, the, the Mets have to sweep all four games. That's all there is to it. And pretty much got to sweep the rest of the games if they're thinking about making the postseason. And oh, by the way, the Dodgers are coming into town this coming weekend. So even if the Mets somehow, some way win three out of four, and they're not going to sweep. If they do, you're going to have to pinch me and wake me up. But let's just say they win at three out of four, and they think, all right, well, we got some gas in the tank. Who knows? Dodgers coming in? Yeah. Okay. That fire will be put out quick, fast, in a hurry by Bellinger, Turner, Muncy, Kershaw, Ryu, etc. And that's what you got with the Mets, people. Uh, there's not much more to say or add. So I'm just going to pretty much fast forward right to the wild card chase as we see it. Uh, I'll continue with the National League. We all know that's a big jumbled mess and the... Seen right now as we're looking at it. The Nationals, I'm going to leave them aside. The Nationals right now are pretty much in cruise control. They're three games ahead of the second-place Cubs, where now the Cubs are reeling, as they lost the back three of a four-game set to the Brewers. And now the Cubs, I believe, go to San Diego for four before coming home to play Pittsburgh this coming week. So the Diamondbacks, like I said, they've been on this tremendous roll. 
They've won eight of the last ten. They're one and a half game behind the Cubs in the wild card race. And let me just look at the schedule real quick because the Cubs actually have a very tricky schedule. They play seven of the final ten games against the Cardinals. So that's going to be for the division. The Cardinals, I think, right now have a three-and-a-half game lead or maybe even more of that. I think it's four-and-a-half games now over the Cubs in the division. So they're pretty much going to have to sweep those in order for them to get to a division title. But the Cubs right now, even with a a one-and-a-half game lead on the Diamondbacks, two over the Brewers and Philadelphia Phillies. And the Philly schedule is not easy either. And then you have the Mets at four. Pretty much this is what you have here for the coming week in the National League. Milwaukee goes to Miami for four, so I'm sure they're going to pound the heck out of the Marlins while they're down there. And then they come home to play St. Louis for three. The Cubs, like I mentioned, four at San Diego before coming home to play the Pirates. And they'll have a 10-game homestand at the start of Friday when they come home to place the Buccos. St. Louis is at Colorado before they host Milwaukee. The Phillies, they're going to have a... An interesting week as they go home to play Atlanta for four. Then they have an off day Friday because they play two against the Red Sox over the weekend. And the Red Sox, of course, their uh, season is long gone. And then the Diamondbacks, as we know, four here in New York before going to Cincinnati. And their schedule's easy. Cincinnati, Miami, at San Diego. And then they play St. Louis at home and San Diego at home. Well, Arizona could really make a case for getting that second wild card. Considering the Cubs have the Cardinals... Seven of the final ten games of the season. Milwaukee, they'll close out on the road at Cincinnati and Colorado. Philadelphia, their schedules is brutal. All right, so then you have those six games this week with Atlanta and Boston. So now they go to Atlanta. They go to Cleveland for three. They go to Washington to play five games. A four-game series, and then one is a makeup. So they have a day-night doubleheader, and then they close out with the Marlins at home. So when you're looking at those road games, I mean, think about this. They actually have... An 11-game road trip in 10 days at Cleveland, at Atlanta, and then Washington. So Philly's certainly going to have their work cut out for them. If I had to say right now, do I think the Cubs hang on? I'm going to say they do. But I would not be surprised if Milwaukee somehow, someway, there's going to be a tiebreaker to end the season. I think Arizona, it's weird. Arizona's played so well here. Now watch them stub their toe in New York. Let's say they split four games. And even though they have Cincinnati and Miami, which think they'll win those games, but then they'll go to San Diego and St. Louis and watch them screw them up. The Diamondbacks. I mean, listen, they traded Zach Greinke at the trade deadline. You would think that's it. And here they are, a game and a half back. I think the Cubs, listen, if the Cubs don't hang on to win this, this will be just awful for them. And you would think Joe Madden will be gone. You would also think that with Javi Baez, and that's a key loss, he has a hairline fracture in his thumb. So who knows if he's going to be able to play through that or if he's going to be out for any significant time. You would think he's going to be out for at least a week, depending on how bad the fracture is. So we're going to see how the National League is going to get very interesting here. Obviously, we have three weeks to go of this baseball season. And then as far as the wild card is concerned in the AL, three-team race there. Cleveland, Tampa, and Oakland. Well, right now, Cleveland is on the outside looking in. Cleveland is one and a half games behind Oakland for the second wild card spot. And then Oakland's just a game behind Tampa for the top spot. Now, of course, all three teams do not play one another. But here's what we have. Cleveland goes to L.A. and then hosts Minnesota over the course of the week here. And Minnesota, they're five and a half back, six in the loss. So you would think the division is going to be, you could forget about that. The Twins will just cruise to a division title, barring any significant meltdown. Oakland, they go to Houston for four, and then Texas for three. So busy week for them as Tampa goes to Texas, and they go to L.A., in fact. I was going to say Atlanta. They go to L.A. to play the Angels before a day off, and then they go two games to the Dodgers. So they have a West Coast trip upcoming, but first... They go to Texas, and then Oakland goes to Texas right after Tampa does. And that's going to be pretty much your week. Now, to close out the season, once Cleveland comes home to play Minnesota this weekend, they do have a homestand where they play Detroit and Philly at home before closing the season at the White Sox and at Washington. The Rays 
as I mentioned, going into next week, they play those two games against the Dodgers. They come home to play four against the Red Sox, two against the Yankees, and then three at Toronto to end their, their season. And then Oakland has Casey and Texas at home after this week. And then they close out three at the Angels and three at four at Seattle. Right now, it's probably going to be chalk. You would think it's going to be Tampa, Oakland, which, uh, let's face it, if Oakland's going to Tampa for the wild card game, who is going to watch that? I know the Dynamo baseball fan, I know I'm not going to watch every out and every pitch. Of course, I'll tune in to see what's going on. I have to. And if it's a playoff game, I mean, I have to watch. I, I'm saying that because it's Oakland and Tampa. You would hope any way, shape, or form that Cleveland were to get the number one spot because at least the energy in Cleveland for a playoff game is going to be a lot better than Oakland or Tampa. And even though they're two and a half back at Tampa right now, but time isn't on their side. And even though they have that nine-game stretch after these first few games at Anaheim, which they have to sweep, but between Minnesota, Detroit, Philadelphia, they're going to have to do a lot of damage on their homestand. Yes, they do go to play the White Sox, who are pretty much dead and buried, and then they got to end up in Washington, where they may not need the games, but you never know. That's just how baseball works, as we all know. So wild card is still hot and heavy, a lot of pursuit, three teams for two spots in the AL, and because they're mathematically involved, I still have to include them. Five teams for one spot because I'm going to keep Washington out of this as they're three ahead of the Cubs. And that is your wild card scenario in Major League Baseball. All right, now to move our attention to the U.S. Open. And as we conclude the final tennis Grand Slam event for the year here in the backyard of Flushing Meadows, just uh, the next borough where I'm sitting in right now. You had a situation where everything worked out perfectly for one Rafael Nadal, considering that Novak Djokovic, we talked about it last week, where he retired from his match due to his shoulder. Roger Federer was upset, and it pretty much led the way for Rafael Nadal to get his 19th, that's right, 1-9, as he's one shy from Roger Federer's 20 all-time men's Grand Slam singles victories. And the way he did it yesterday, five sets, against the uh, Russian Medvedev, which uh, just showed a lot of grit, determination. We all know that when you've come to that point where you've played for two weeks, now you're deep into a fifth set, almost five hours into a match, you pretty much leave everything out on that tennis floor. And for him to achieve that, who knows if this is going to be, other than the French Open, because we all know how great of a clay player uh how great of a clay court player he is. I mean, he's an all-time great in that regard. The best ever and probably the best we'll ever see. But for him to either do this again next year, whether it's at the Australian, at Wimbledon, or even the U.S. Open, you would think that this could be his one shining moment here knowing that if he happens to go through the Australian Open, whether win or lose, As long as Roger Federer doesn't win, he has a shot to match him come late May, early June next year when he's in Roland Garros at the French Open. I would think that getting up there in age, Djokovic is still going to be part of this mix here. Who knows what other men's players are going to step up their game to see if they could somehow, some way, challenge the likes of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm going to say this, as I don't think it's going out on a limb, and I'm not the tennis connoisseur, but I do follow these major tournaments. And I will say this, that other than the French Open, I could see this being Rafael Nadal's last victory lap when it comes to the other three majors. Because he hasn't been able to get Wimbledon. He hasn't been able to get an Australian Open for quite some time. And the U.S. Open, let's face it, he did win it two years ago. And I also believe he won in 2013. So he has this thing with the odd number of years here. But he'll be 34 next year. This is a game where, surprisingly, when you look at Federer, and he's in his late 30s. When you look at Serena, and I'll get to her in a second, she's going to be 38 at the end of the month. This is a sport where 
was once dominated by players in their teens, players in their early to mid-20s, tops, and by the time you're 30, you're a relic. These guys and gals certainly show no signs of slowing down. But as Charles Barkley once famously quipped, Father Time is undefeated. And you would think, sooner than later, despite the fact of nutrition, exercise, medicine, science, whatever it may be, that these matches are certainly going to be ones that attrition is not going to be enough. And give it to the heart of Nadal because he has the heart of a lion. But I would think that this is going to be his last go-round as far as winning a major other than the French Open. And as far as Serena Williams is concerned, this is now the second year in a row where she's made it to the Wimbledon and U.S. Open final and lost. Two years. Ever since she got... Ever since she won her 23rd Grand Slam event, and you would think that despite the fact that there's been other tennis players, other women's tennis players that have certainly played well and have done well against her. But it always seems to be in these final matches that for whatever the reason, they've certainly been able to get the upper hand against her. Whether it was Simona Hellup earlier this year at Wimbledon, Naomi Osaka last year at the U.S. Open. Of course, her opponent on Saturday night, straight out of Canada, north of the border here, and a Bianca Adriescu. I wonder what the thought process, and we know she's a warrior all-time great. I'm not trying to say that, oh, she's soft. No, no, no. But the one thing I do wonder in Serena, and I'm sure she's probably hungry, maybe, who knows, this could be her last go-around in 2020. Obviously, she had a baby. Maybe she wants to just go off into the family life. She has her 23 Grand Slams in her back pocket, and that's it. Off to the sunset she goes. But you got to wonder. Not to say that she's not hungry for another win or another title or whatever, but you got to wonder psychologically to think that, man, two years in a row I haven't won a Wimbledon or a U.S. Open here in this final. Do I have it in me to get one more go-around? That remains to be seen. I'm not going to sit here and predict that next year is the last. But you would think, and it wouldn't surprise me, that if she looks at her options and weighs what lies ahead, that you could see 2020 being it. She has nothing to prove. There's nothing else that she could do on a tennis court that's going to make somebody else think, oh, no, she's not an all-time great. Oh, no, she doesn't have it anymore. Well, for whatever reason, she doesn't have it when it comes to closing out her opponents in these final matches. I mean, and that's... Incentive enough for her to come back, then God bless her. I'm sure she wants to come back to Wimbledon, seal the deal there, and U.S. Open seal the deal. And maybe that's what the plan is for 2020. I'm sure she knows that the Coco Goffs of the world are going to be the taking the torch for the next generation. The Naomi Osaka's of the world. Maybe to a certain extent, Simona Ayla. Maybe this Canadian girl. I don't know about the Carolyn Wozniacki's players like that, you know, they have the number one ranking and it seems like within the first week they're gone. But Serena, as great as this run has been, and by any means I'm not trying to put this run to rest, but I would think that the end is coming a lot sooner than we think. And I wouldn't be surprised that if 2020 is going to be the farewell tour for one Serena Williams. Now I'll just leave that right there. All right, uh, nothing really to, of note in the NBA and NHL. As the NHL, now the prospects, a lot of the first-round picks are certainly starting camp. The season opens up October 2nd on a Wednesday. So the NHL season will be here right before you know it, and then two weeks after that, the NBA season will tip off. So before you know it, we're going to be talking NBA, more NHL previews, etc. So that's going to be coming in the... Weeks, probably was that September the 30th, three weeks from today, I'll probably do a little NHL preview, and then two weeks after that will be the NBA jump off. So we have that to look forward to as the winter the winter sports will start to trickle in slowly but surely. College football, I didn't mention that earlier, and as I should, but real quick, Michigan, talk about dodging a missile. They would have lost to Army, could you imagine? Not even two weeks into their college football season, it would have been up in smoke. So lucky for them, they were able to 
withstand that pressure of losing to an Army team. And that's not to knock Army because obviously they were a very competitive opponent, uh, but they weren't able to seal the deal there. And now as we look at a week three in college football, there wasn't anything else I, I could that sticks out as far as college football is concerned. Nothing really that I thought tickled my fancy other than the Michigan story. But as we look ahead to week three, what do we have here real quick? I always look at what the primetime matchup is because that's always the good one. And I should have realized that last week because Notre Dame played on a Monday night. There was no way they were going to play on a Saturday, so they had to buy this week. Yeah, looking at the schedule here, there is really no games of note. None. Clemson-Syracuse. Alabama at South Carolina. Yeah, there isn't anything that you can shake a stick at. New Mexico-Notre Dame. So that's their first game back after the Monday night game from last week. And that's pretty much your college football this week. So very ho-hum, to say the least. As far as my hero and zero of the weeks are concerned, my hero of the week... A little hockey note. Joe Thornton, 40 years old, is about to play his 22nd year in the National Hockey League, and he's going to do it again for the San Jose Sharks. One year, $2 million. Here's a guy that, number one pick overall, Boston Bruins, 22 years later. He started in the 97-98 season. And here we are about to approach the 2019-2020 season. So just when you think, Albeit he did it with one team and Tom Brady 20 years. Here's a guy 22 years and he's still chugging along. Loves the game. It's great to see athletes perform well into their 30s and in this case into their 40s. So, you know, my hero, I'll give it to Joe Thornton. Hopefully he has a very good year. Hopefully San Jose can make it a deep postseason run and get that Stanley Cup that he long deserves. But the funny thing is, in looking at his stats, he's not a Hall of Fame player. I understand he's at 1,400 points and I only had a couple of 100-point seasons, and I get the 100-point seasons aren't as big as they once were, especially in the 80s, but who knows? He probably will be elected one day, but I'll really reflect on the numbers as we get close to the NHL season. But uh, I didn't think, in my eyes, I got to look at the 30-goal seasons and the 80-point seasons, et cetera. But, uh, but Joe Thornton, didn't want to throw ice cold water on you. That's how the theme has been all podcast here. So I uh, want to spread some love to you as my hero of the week and the zero of the week. He couldn't revel in the fact that his team won a World Series last year. So not even a full baseball calendar year has gone by before Dave Dombrowski, the GM or former GM of the Boston Red Sox, was shown the door. He was fired before the end of the season as the aforementioned GM. And what could you say? Here's a team that's underachieved. Here's a team that certainly had zero bullpen. You thought the Mets had a bad bullpen. And listen, we all know how putrid it is. But the Red Sox certainly couldn't get out of the way, especially after that slow start where they had all those games on the West Coast to start the year. They were 3-8, and eight, and it just seemed from there it was all uphill. And who knows, even if signing Chris Sale to that five-year, what was it, $150 million deal, knowing that they got four more years on top to pay at top dollar to a guy who looks like he's on the decline and not being able to procure a closer, that's, oh, that's a tough year. So to think the shine is still on that World Series ring, but uh, yeah, he's got to shine those shoes because they are scuffling out the door in Fenway Park. So sorry, Dave Dombrowski, you are the zero of the week. And that's going to do it here for this edition of the j Rolls Podcast. Again, for my first timers, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. I hope you come back for many, many more and welcome aboard. And for those who are listening for the first time, or if this is your second, third, fourth time, wherever it may be, and you and you want to give a little depth to the podcast, please feel free and do so on wherever you sign on for your podcast. If it's Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, iHeartRadio, any of those platforms or wherever you may get them. All I ask you is just to subscribe. Please leave a rating, post a review, all that. Just show a little love to the podcast because, again, I independently do this each and every week from the love and the heart that I have for sports as much as it's been driving me crazy recently with my teams. Because all that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there in this vast podcast universe. So it can generate some interest with those outside who aren't familiar with this podcast, especially with the quote-unquote future guests that I am uh, looking to aspire to reach, whether it's the former or current athlete, the 
broadcaster, the blogger, the writer, well, whomever it may be. So if you could go ahead and do that, I would sincerely appreciate it, as well as check out any of my social media accounts for latest and greatest with me, the podcast, what I may have brewing in the days and weeks to come. And you could do so at J Reels on Instagram, J Reels One, just the number on Twitter, the J Reels Podcast at my Facebook fan page. And if you want to shoot me a message on any of those aforementioned social media accounts, you could do so, or at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'm open to it all, people. Trust me. Uh, I have thick skin, whatever you want to say. If you say my show's bad, all right. Well, what can I do to improve it? Or if you say it's great, well, I'll humbly appreciate that. And Go on my merry way. So either way, people, please reach out. Do so uh, again. It, uh, I thank you twice more than once for your participation, not only downloading and listening to this, but whatever else you may do as far as leaving a review, spreading the wealth, share it with your friends, family, whomever it may be, as I discuss everything that's happening each and every week, whether it's on the diamond, on the ice, on the gridiron, on the hardwood, on the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>